You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. George H. Smith, 1979 Libertarian Party Convention, Los Angeles. Thank you. Can everyone hear me all right? Okay. I'd like to begin by uh, quoting something here. This uh, is a quotation from an article that appeared in the second biennial report of California's Superintendent of Public Instruction for the years 1866 and 1867, and here it is. Let it be the aim of our public schools to render the youth patterns of modest deportment, purity of speech, and refinement of manners, as well as of stalwart mental power, practical knowledge, and business energy. So shall we honor God, bless humanity, and receive the benedictions of posterity. Close quote. Now, this sort of statement concerning the purposes and aims of the public schools, or more accurately, state schools, which is a term I prefer, um, this is very common in the literature of the 19th century and even in the literature of the early 20th century. And what I want to do here is explore somewhat some of the historical aspects of the state schools, not just for the sake of history, but rather to point out the relevance of the history of state schools in the United States uh, for the libertarian cause of privatizing totally the educational system. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is that it seems to me that libertarians sometimes miss a lot of good arguments because they are by and large unfamiliar with certain historical aspects of the development of state schools in the United States. Certainly, I don't think anyone, not even the most rabid uh, defender of the state schools, would argue that the schools have succeeded in turning out patterns of modest deportment, purity of speech, and refinement of manners. Manners. So certainly something seems to have gone amiss here since then. So uh, the way I'd like to do this, uh, first of all, let me make a semantic point that I alluded to earlier. Uh, and by the way, if I repeat a few points that I made at the panel discussion, I apologize for those of you who were there, but uh, I have to cover some of these basic points over. Uh, I think it's important that libertarians begin using the term state education or state schools rather than public education or public schools uh, for the simple reason that, as all libertarians know, the, the marketplace is much more public in the sense that it provides uh, an avenue for people to make their desires and needs felt uh, much more than does the state sector. So in that sense, so-called private institutions or uh, private businesses, for example, your local grocery store, it's much more public in the sense of being responsive to public uh, demands than is, for example, your post office or your school. So I think libertarians should take the initiative here and start questioning whether the state schools are in fact public and what exactly is meant by that very uh, uh, vague term. So I think we should just, from now on, whenever possible, although you'll hear me slipping up from time to time, refer to state schools, because that's really what they are. They're state schools, they're not public schools. Uh, the average person, the public, in general, has very little input as to what goes on in state schools. And it points out very clearly that very basically what it is is state versus public, which is a libertarian way of looking at things. Now... <clears throat> The first thing I want to do is set up a kind of a para paradigm for you, uh, three different models, ways of going about criticizing uh, state education. Uh, before I get into that directly, I'm going to give you a few statistics as kind of a pre preliminary. I'm not going to do much of this. You can go to the Digest of Educational Statistics and look this up for yourself if you're interested in all these statistics. But this will give you some idea of the magnitude of the problem just in financial terms. The average cost per pupil in the United States uh, in generally in current dollars for public schools in the 73-74 period, in, in other words, in 73-74 dollars, was $1,364 per pupil. Now, this is for uh, uh, primary education. 
This compares in constant dollars in 1974 dollars to 490 in 1950, which represents an increase in this period of nearly 300 percent. Between 64 and 74 alone, the cost per pupil in constant dollars, again adjusted for inflation, rose over 61 percent. In terms of the percentage of the gross, na gross national product, which at best is a very rough indicator if it indicates much at all, but it does tell us something, the percentage spent on education in the United States rose from 3.4% in 1950 to 8% in 1975. Uh, education now constitutes the largest single expense in the national budget, and, and it, it, ex it exceeds even that of, of the so-called Defense Department, and it's the largest expenditures of state and local governments. Now, where do these expenditures go? Well, from two-thirds to three-quarters, depending on the state uh, involved, from two-thirds to three-quarters of these expenditures go for the salaries of educators and administrators. Now, such expenditures and the constantly uh, expanding uh, number of administrators, even as pupil uh, attendance declines, they're often justified by saying that uh, with more teachers, especially, the teacher-student ratio is reduced. So the fewer pupils you have per teacher, the better the teacher can teach and so forth. But the thing that uh, many advocates of this point of view don't point out is that this student-teacher uh, ratio has been falling steadily since the 1930s. For example, in 1950, the pupil-teacher ratio was 27 to 1 on the average. In 1960, it was 25 to 1. In 1974, it was 18 to 1. Now, we have to ask the question, during this falling, uh, this declining period of the student-teacher uh, ra uh, ratio, has there been a corresponding increase in academic achievement? And I don't think I have to go into statistics to point out that that obviously is not the case. The achievement test scores are declining steadily. In fact, I heard a report on the news last night. I didn't get a chance to find it in the paper that the latest in California, the latest, uh, I guess it's the SAT test scores have gone down again in California, much to the surprise of the, the uh, teachers' unions. <laughs> um, they, I think they blamed it on television and uh, parents. Those were the two, two major causes. Never never any question that might be the teachers and the educational bureaucracy. Okay, now with those preliminary statistics, this is kind of background. What I want to do now is uh, set up three models of, or ways of criticizing the state school system. Uh, one I shall very roughly call the liberal way, one the conservative way, and finally the libertarian way. I don't think there's any confusing of the, li uh, the liberal with the libertarian model, but I think there is some confusion on the part of libertarians between the conservative and the libertarian model, or, or basic way of criticizing. And that's basically what I want to spend most of my time discussing. Now, virtually everyone agrees that the state education system is in absolute chaos. Even the most ardent defenders of state schools are willing to admit this, although their explanations as to why it occurred uh, differ somewhat. Uh, the typ typical liberal model for improving the schools or getting out of this crisis is that um, basically not enough money is being spent, there's too much discrimination in the schools and so forth. I'm sure you're familiar with all these arguments. So that putting more money into the schools and so forth, this is the kind of uh, liberal paradigm of, of getting out of the crisis. The conservative way of critiquing state schools is basically uh, on the, one of the, at least one of the basic conservative ways, is on the uh, level of efficiency. Typically the argument is the kids are not getting educated, uh, they're not learning to read and write, they're coming out functional illiterates, we're pouring more and more money down the state schools, which indeed we are. Uh, as you can see by the statistics I just quoted. But basically this is as far as, far as the conservatives go. That they're for efficiency. They want to get uh, the value from their dollar. Uh, some conservatives are in favor of at least some private schools, uh, but basically the conservatives do not really attack the state educational system at its foundation. Now from this I want to move to the, what I call the libertarian paradigm or the libertarian model. Because you see, some libertarians I've talked to don't even get by the conservative model. All they do is talk about efficiency, when we should abolish the schools perhaps because they're not efficient. Well, what does that term efficiency mean? Well, for, as a libertarian, what I say to people, and um, when the question of efficiency comes up, and this may shock some of you, is that I think the schools, the state schools, have been marvelously efficient. I think they've accomplished basically what they set out to accomplish when they were established in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, in that sense, they are models of efficiency. They have been extraordinarily successful. They haven't educated uh, very well, but they've been extraordinarily successful. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, obviously, if they have not educated well, that would imply that education was not really one of the primary purposes in founding the public school in the, the state schools. And that is indeed the case, and that's why the history is so important. 
If you examine the debates going on from, say, the time of Horace Mann, the so-called father of the common school system, as it was then known in the 1840s, 1850s, going up even through John Dewey in the 1920s, all throughout this period there are uh, very clear statements about the reason that there have to be state schools. And these reasons almost never are concerned with issues of literacy, cognitive skills, and so forth. When the state schoolers in the 19th century were attacking private schools, they did not do it on the basis of the, state, uh, the private schools not being able to educate, because obviously the private schools were educating and were doing a very good job of it. The uh, literacy statistics, for example, in the colonial period in America, the literacy rates were very, very high. This is true, as E.G. West has pointed out in Britain in the early 19th century before state schools in Britain. Literacy was quite high. So issues like literacy uh, were not the areas that were debated between the proponents of private versus state schools. What were the areas that were debated? Well, I'm going to get into this a little bit later, but basically they concerned so-called social goals. The basic way that the state schoolers argued was that, granted, private schools can provide literacy skills. That's no big deal, although it seems to be today for the state schools themselves. Uh, the basic point in favor of state schools was that they instill social values, necessary civic virtues, into students. There had to be, in the eyes of the early state schoolers, there had to be a homogeneous population. Uh, pluralism was, it was viewed as a great threat to many of these early advocates of state schooling. They saw in pluralism the roots of diversity and conflict. And in order to preserve the American Republic, it was argued, in order to have this order, social order and so forth, uh, one must have state schools to enforce, and I do mean enforce in the literal sense, in other words, this is an argument that was used for compulsory education as well, one must force the kids into the schools and teach them these values so they'll end up being good little citizens. Uh, I'll be going into a little bit later how this was applied, especially to Irish immigrants, uh, to Catholics. Uh, a lot of the uh, impetus for state schools came from the wanting to what was called uh, Christianize the Catholics. Uh, it was a clear anti-Catholic bias. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it's so clear you don't even have to read between the lines. The proponents of state schools, especially in New York and Boston, where you find the earliest school systems, were very, very clear about this. So it was a homogenization of the American population. This was the basic motive behind the uh, proponents of the state school system. And I think you have to keep this clearly in mind because, frankly, I think it's one of the major motives for the uh, sustaining of that system today. So in that sense, they have been quite successful in that the state schools are quite good at turning out rather complacent, non-critical citizens who basically will never question the fundamental attitudes and policies of the state under which they're governed. Now, if, so in other words, what I'm saying is you have, if you look at efficiency, you have to look at it from the point of view of what goal are you talking about? Efficient with regard to what standard? And if one of the uh, basic goals of the state school system was to churn out good little citizens who will, when they're drafted, they won't complain and so on and so forth, then by and large, although there are obvious exceptions, because we're all here for one, but by and large, uh, they have been marvelously effective in this. Now, the second way they've been effective, and this is something I'll be dealing with uh, perhaps if I have the time a little more in a little more detail, uh, the state schools and especially the uh, educational bureaucracies were explicitly established, and I have to emphasize explicitly. In other words, if you read the literature, they're very clear in the late 19th century about what was going on. They, as Murray Rothbard once said, this is before the art of public relations was invented. And you don't have to read between the lines. They're very straightforward about what they're doing. Um, and the educational bureaucracy was basically established as a means of insulating teachers and administrators from the public. You find, for example, in some controversies in San Francisco and in, in the school system there in the 19th century, there was a citizens board that interviewed the teachers to decide who should teach in the, in the schools there. And the teachers were incensed about this, saying, we're professionals, we should be interviewed by our peers, we don't want the public meddling in this, what do they know about education? This is, runs throughout all the, if you look in the... Uh, uh, the biennial reports of the California state schools of that period, there's a lot of literature about this. And what they saw the function of bureaucracy to be in that time was to insulate themselves from public demands and pressures. This was usually done under the name of professionalism. We're professionals. We can't be subject to these lay people who don't know anything about education. We're the experts. We have to have professional dignity. And this was the sort of argument that was used. Let me give you just a few brief examples of how this was argued. Uh, a leading sociologist of the 19th century, a very, very influential one, one of the most influential ever in the United States, was uh, uh, Frank Ward. And in his book, Dynamic Sociology, has an extensive passage. This was written in 1883 and had quite an impact on educators. Uh, he has a long uh, chapter dealing with the case for state education. And here are just a few things he says about why there should be state education. Quote, uh, 
The secret of the superiority of the state over private education lies in the fact, says Ward, that in the former, that is, in state education, the teacher is happily independent of the desires of parents. And continuing the quote, the result desired by the state is a wholly different one from that desired by parents, guardians, and pupils. Close quote. Now, Ward goes on to despair of what he calls the, quote, tricks of diplomacy, close quote, to which the non-governmental teacher, quote, must resort in order to please the fancies and gratify the caprices of the heterogeneously minded patrons, close quote. He says that in the state school, the teacher is, quote, freed from the necessity of planning to meet such cases. Now, one finds this sort of argument, uh, to some extent, even among so-called friends of, uh, at least to some degree, of private education. For example, Theodore Sizer, who was the dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education, wrote an article in 1969 favoring a voucher plan. I'm not in favor of voucher plans, but he claimed that this was kind of putting it in the marketplace. Uh, but he stressed in this article that what he called total free enterprise in education cannot be tolerated, of course, he said. Uh, he said, quote, the marketplace should not be the total arbiter of educational quality. He said, children and parents should have some control over education, but in his words, not enough to terrorize it, close quote. That's a very strange use of terms, uh, the idea that just because you will not solic uh, pay a certain school to educate your child if you refuse to pay them or refuse to solicit their business, that some way you're terrorizing. It's like, like you're terrorizing your corner drugstore by not doing business there because you can get better service elsewhere. But this sort of thing, now I wouldn't use these quotes unless they were typical, and believe me, I'll be using a number of quotes in this talk. And these are very typical quotes. I'm not selecting just the worst of what I can find. I could quote you literally dozens of similar passages. So the quotes I'm using, you have to understand, are very typical of the literature. Um, now let's uh, apply what I've just said. Let me back up just a moment. So the second point I'm making in terms of the schools being efficient is that since one of the basic purpose of, purposes of the state, state school bureaucracy, as indeed of most bureaucracies, was to insulate teachers and administrators from uh, the demands of parents, the consumers. In that sense also, the schools have been marvelously efficient. So on both those points uh, that I've just mentioned, um, first the point of turning out good citizens, secondly of insulating teachers and administrators from public demand, the schools have been uh, one of the most successful government institutions ever. So as I said, when we're talking about efficiency, we have to talk about efficient in regard to what? Now this I regard as kind of the libertarian attitude. It's a much more radical attitude. One shouldn't simply go about saying the schools are inefficient, they don't teach well. Well, the schools, as I said, were never really intended to teach all that well. They were set up basically for different purposes. Uh, private schools can teach well as, uh, you know, better than, than, than public than state schools. So the libertarian paradigm, and I think the way libertarians should go about attacking state schools in general, should be much more radical than the simple efficiency argument. It should, be, it should, lie, it should attack the very root of the state educational establishment, and that entails attacking the, 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 interested, the vested interest in the educational bureaucracy, and indeed it, it involves something much more radical. It involves attacking the entire purposes for which the state educational system was set up, this inculcation of civic virtue and all that kind of stuff. I'll, as I say, I'll be giving you more detail on that in a second. Now, I want now to turn to some specific historical points to kind of flesh out some of the points I've been making, and then later I'll kind of tie all this together and, and summarize the importance of it. Uh, if you examine the, uh, the proponents of state education throughout history, even going back to Greek times, you find several common themes that run throughout all the arguments in favor of state education. By far the most common theme in the literature is the theme that state education is required not for the interests of the children, not even for the interests of society at large, but rather for the interests of the state. This is very, very clear in the literature. To take some uh, uh, well-known figures, Robespierre once wrote that the nation alone has the right to educate children. Mussolini wrote, the total and integral, integral education of the Italian is a principal function of the state. One can go through all, throughout the literature of all these uh, dictator types and find very strong statements stressing how important it is to have education in the control of the state. This, of course, is obvious in places like uh, Russia and China and so forth. I don't think that needs much uh, 
emphasis. But you have to understand that this type of attitude is very clear in American literature as well. It's not just Russia, it's not just Cuba or China. It's part and parcel of the American argument as well. Uh, even, as I said, going back to Aristotle. Aristotle once wrote that, um, quote, education should be one and the same for all, and it should be public, not private, close quote. Now, the thing I want to point out is that when you accept this argument that there should be state schools, what happens is you're attacking the basic libertarian maxim of individual rights, or as I prefer to call it, self-ownership or self-proprietorship. The idea that the individual owns his or own, her own person, uh, uh, labor, and the fruits of one's labor. Now, Aristotle was, as in most cases, was dealt with fundamentals in a very good way, because after writing that the state, that the state should control education, he went on to say, quote, Neither must we suppose that any one of the citizens belongs to himself, for they all belong to the state, close quote. Now, the thing I want to point out is that the early, even in the early American literature, the argument hinged on this issue of self-ownership. The lines were very clearly drawn. They're very blurred today. No one ever argues like this anymore. But the issue was, does the individual own himself or herself, or is the individual owned by the state? This is where the bottom line was in the arguments, and this is what libertarians have to do, is revive that sort of moral argument. Let me give you just a few examples from American history. Benjamin Rush, who was one of the absolute heroes of the, of the state educational establishment, because in the 18th century, in the colonial period, he was advocating state education. He was one of the early advocates of it. In one of his essays advocating state education, here's what the great Benjamin Rush said, quote, Let our pupil be taught that he does not belong to himself, but that he is public property. Let him be taught to love his family, but let him be taught at the same time that he must forsake and even forget them when the welfare of his country requires it. He must be taught to amass wealth, but it must be only to increase his power of contributing to the wants and demands of the state. He must be taught that his life is not his own when the safety of his country requires it." Close quote. Now, let's go up a little further in time into the 19th century. And let's, I'm not going to deal with minor figures here, I'm going to deal with very major figures. The, um, William T. Harris, the U.S. Commissioner of Education from 1889 to 1906, and a very influential figure in the state educational development, believed that the individual, quote, owes all that is distinctively human to the state, close quote. Not surprisingly, Harris uh, viewed education, state education as, quote, a mere war measure, as a means of preservation of the state, close quote. Now, this is where we get the theme of self-preservation of the state being the primary reason for state education. And this theme is echoed throughout all of the literature of the 19th century. James W. Patterson, New Hampshire State Superintendent of Public Instruction, addressed the National Educational Association in 1881, where he argued that it is proper for the state to provide education, quote, when the instinct of self-preservation shall demand it. He went on to say, it is solely as an act of self-defense that the government comes to the rescue of the schools, close quote. He's, uh, and incidentally, during this age in the late 19th century of burgeoning American imperialism and, and militarism, he pointed out that, Patterson pointed out, that it was essential for schools to impart knowledge of, quote, the genius and heroism of arms, close quote. Now, coming closer to home, to California, we take up John Sweat, who was probably the most influential educator in California in the 19th century. He was the, uh, I think it was the third state superintendent of schools in California. He was a very important figure. Uh, well, what does he say? He says things like this, quote, Early in the history of our country, these two fundamental principles were enunciated and adopted, that it is the duty of a Republican government as an act of self-preservation to educate all classes of the people, and that the property of the state, notice he refers to property of the state, not property of the citizens of the state, should be taxed to pay for that education. Now, he also refers to children as children of the state. That's a quote. He says, quote, Children arrived at the age of maturity belong not to parents, but to the state to society, to the country, close quote. Remember, this is the leading educator in California in the 19th century. Now, I, I want to go back and point out, you see how clear these statements are. And this, as I said, this is a fraction of what I could, what I could pull out. I mean, this stuff is just all over the literature. These are the sorts of arguments that were, that were used. You see, the libertarian position of self-ownership was a much clearer position in the 19th century. There were more people pushing it than there, than there were, at least until recently in, 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 our, in our century. So that, that's where the battle line was. That's what they argued about. And that's why you get these very clear statements from the other side. These people were aware of what the issue was, that it was self-ownership versus state ownership. Now, one finds a similar ideology adopted by the early theorists of so-called progressive liberalism or progressive education at around the turn of the century. Charles Cooley, a very influential sociologist and champion of what is now called the corporate state, was astonishingly clear on the implications of state schooling for social policy. 
Here's what Cooley said, quote, since the school environment is comparatively easy to control, here is the place to create an ideal formative group or system of groups which shall envelop the individual and mold his growth, a model society by assimilation to which he may become fit to leaven the rest of his life. Here, if anywhere, that is in the schools, we can ensure his learning, loyalty, discipline, service, personal address, and democratic cooperation, close quote. Now, if you think that's bad, listen to a contemporary who was as influential as, influential as Cooley named Edward Ross, who was a, a big influence on uh, Theodore Roosevelt, incidentally. Here's what Ross said, referring to state education. To collect little plastic lumps of human dough from private households and shape them on the social needing board exhibits a faith in the power of suggestion which few people ever attain to. And so it happens that the role of the schoolmaster is just beginning. Close quote. Now, that's pretty scary stuff, but... Again, the really scary part is that this stuff was written in all seriousness and it was applauded as being great. I mean, we listen to this and, and I've given a similar talk to other libertarian audiences and they're shocked. They, they couldn't imagine that anyone could be this blunt about what was going on. But what scares me, as I said even more, is the fact that this sort of thing could be said and contrary to the way we would react, people were reacting saying this is terrific. You know, this is, this is what we need. Now, let me deal very briefly with... Um, a few of the other so-called public purposes for which the state education bureauc educational bureaucracy was established. And here I'm not going to give you a lot of quotes. And by the way, the reason I'm reading you quotes is not because I, I like reading them particularly, uh, but because unless I read them, I really don't think, I think even this audience might think I was exaggerating. I know the average audience does. They think that nobody would ever say these things. If I just paraphrase this stuff and said, you know, the, this, Patterson says this or Sweat says this, people would kind of think, well, what did he really say? Am I taking it out of context? Am I substituting different words? So it's very important that I let you hear the statements in the language of the people who advocated it, because it's not exaggerating. Okay. One of the primary purposes, uh, allegedly, and, and all these purposes overlap to some extent, as you'll see, uh, for the establishment of state schools was the inculcation of virtue. Uh, now, in the 19th century, what was meant by the inculcation of virtue, as I indicated before, was the inculcation of specifically Protestant values. There's no question but that throughout the 19th century, and uh, even to a large extent now, the state schools were Protestant schools, uh, and here I'm opposing Protestant to Catholic. And it's not accidental that the Catholics set up their own school system. Um, it was also argued, and this is one of the very common arguments in England and in the United States, that state schools were necessary, of all things, to reduce crime. A prominent advocate and minister, Horace Bushnell, in 1853, wrote that uh, if the state schools were established, quote, then we shall have large masses of children growing up in neglect with no school at all provided to which they can be sent, ignorant, hopeless, and debased creatures, banditti of the street, wild men of anarchy, waiting for their leaders in the guerrilla practice of the mountains. At first, the pest of society, and finally, its end or overthrow, close quote. All of that adjusted by abolishing the state schools. I mean, I mean if he went to a state school today, this is probably what he finds, you know. Bushnell <laughs> um, went on to say that the state should assume the role of what he called the foster mother, so that children may be guided in the paths of virtue and religion. Now, let me give you a couple examples. And again, these are not exceptional examples. I want to do this to illustrate the the rabid anti-Catholic bias that was, um, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to, that will finish the virtue part. I now want to go into this issue of the uh, cultural and religious homogeneity being one of the primary purposes behind the state schools. I find it very ironic today when the uh, advocates of state schools say that we need the state schools to preserve pluralism. This is crazy because the state schools were set up explicitly to oppose religious and cultural pluralism. Uh, as I said, this is particularly true of the Irish immigrants, which came through basically in two waves, first around the 1840-1850 period during the Great Famine. They came in the millions, into, especially into New York and in the, in the Massachusetts areas. Um, and this saw the, the, and then later in the 19th century, there's another wave, this saw the rise in America of the violent anti-Catholic reaction, which was known as the Know Nothing Movement, or sometimes known as the Nativist Movement. Um, now, a lot of work has been done on this, but I'll give you just a few very brief uh, samples of the sort of thing you'll find in the literature of that time. The first is from a, uh, one of the uh, professional journals in Massachusetts of the 1850s during this wave of immigrants. Uh, it's, from, it's called the Massachusetts Teacher. And this refers specifically to the education of Irish immigrant children. 
And as I said, this is very typical of the literature. Here's the quote. With the old, not much can be done. But with their children, the great remedy is education. The rising generation must be taught as our children are taught, meaning the Protestant children. We say must be because in many cases this can only be accomplished by coercion. In too many instances, the parents, Catholic parents that is, are unfit guardians of their own children. If left to their direction, the young will be brought up on idle, dissolute, vagrant habits, which will make them worse members of society than their parents are. Instead of, instead of filling our public schools, they will find their way into our prisons, houses of correction and almshouses. Nothing can operate effectually here but stringent legislation, thoroughly carried out by an efficient police. The children must be gathered up, now notice the language, the children must be gathered up and forced into school. And those who resist or impede this plan, whether parents or priests, with priests italicized, must be held accountable and punished, close quote. There's none of this humanitarian garbage here. This is straight, you know, straight off the shoulder. You have to admire these people. They, they had a specific goal, and at least they said what they were about. None of this stuff about poor kids. And Well, here, they're talking about poor children here, too, uh, since most of the Irish immigrants were very, very poor. This is the end of side one. The immigrant thing, and this was written in a probably the single most influential history of education ever written. It was in Elward uh, Coverley's book *Public Education in the United States*, written in the first edition in 18, uh, 1919. Now, Coverley is considered the dean of the old style of American historiography. This particular book had an enormous impact on education courses, on future history texts. If I have time later, I'll, I'll deal a little bit later with uh, how that's changed now. There's a school of revisionism uh, presently, which has challenged this whole picture. But here's what Coverley said, reflecting back on the immigrant thing. Quote, after about 1882, the character of our immigration changed in a very remarkable matter, manner. Immigration from the north and west of Europe began to decline rather abruptly, and in, in its place, immigration from the south and east of Europe set in. Now here's, uh, Coverley's referring to the Poles, Slovaks, Croatians, Austrians, and others. He went on to say, these southern and eastern Europeans were of a very different type from the north and west Europeans who preceded them largely illiterate, docile, lacking in initiative, and almost wholly without Anglo-Saxon Anglo conceptions of righteousness, liberty, law, order, public decency, and government, their coming has served to dilute tremendously our national stock and to weaken and corrupt our political life. Our national life for the past quarter of a century has been inflicted with a serious case of racial indigestion." Close quote. This from probably the, one of the most influential uh, educational historians and educators ever. So I think I can, I've made the point fairly clearly with just uh, those few quotations. But this is one of the dominant themes in the 19th century was the homogenization of American society. That is kind of the Protestant, typical Protestant model of society. Um, and this was one of the, so this pluralism stuff that you hear today is just absolute, from a historical point of view, is just ridiculous. Uh, it was pluralism that the state schools were set up to fight. Okay, now closely related, uh, going on to another goal now, closely related to the American, uh, the, um, what is known as Americanization, what I've just discussed is sometimes referred to as Americanization, closely related to this was the inculcation of national loyalty in the schools. I touched on this before briefly, but I'll give you two more examples. Uh, John Sweat, to whom I referred previously, uh, bragged during his campaign for state superintendent of schools in California that he was a union man. He was running for the state superintendency during the Civil War, and California, of course, wasn't directly involved in that. And his main plank was that he favored the North in the Civil, uh, Civil War. And as a state superintendent of schools, he argued, he would produce more union men. Now, this was his basic plank, by the way. This wasn't just incidental. This was his basic argument. And here's what he said in one of his campaign speeches. Quote, cast your eye over the map of our country today and show me a section of states from which men shed their blood most freely in battle for the defense of the Union. And I will show you that such states have also expended the most money for public schools. Close quote. He went on to say, in his words, that the crowning achievement of state schools was that they, quote, have educated an army of a half a million men who have volunteered to sustain the national flag with the bayonet, close quote, close quote. Now, going to a better known figure, Woodrow Wilson, uh, he had this to say about the relationship between the state schools and what was perceived as patriotism or loyalty. Here's Wilson, quote, loyalty means nothing unless, unless it has at its heart the absolute principle of self-sacrifice. Loyalty means that you ought to be ready to sacrifice every interest that you have and your life itself 
if your country calls upon you to do so. And that is the sort of loyalty which ought to be inculcated in these newcomers, that is, the immigrants. No man has ever risen to the real stature of spiritual manhood until he found that it is finer to serve somebody else than it is to serve himself." Close quote. Well, I won't burden you with a lot, of, a lot more quotations. I will point out just a few uh, other brief uh, historical points. It's not accidental that the majority, and the vast majority, with the possible exception of two states or so, all the compulsory education laws that now are on the books, at least the origins of them, were passed between 1870 and 1890. Now, in Massachusetts, passed one in 1852, I believe, and there was an earlier one in that, another state in that decade as well. But the vast majority were passed between 1870 and 1890. Well, why that period of time? I mean, there were state schools before then, obviously, but it was the compulsory education laws themselves. Just overnight, there was this big boom of compulsory education laws. Well, is it coincidental that this was right after the Civil War? Well, no, it's not coincidental. And the sweat, the sweat uh, quote indicates this. Uh, the reason, basically, for the big cry for compulsory education laws was it because that this is the way to make sure everyone, every child gets a proper education, and was this the way, uh, you know, to, to raise, to, uh, was it a great humanitarian thing to protect children from negligent parents and all this sort of thing? Well, no, it wasn't. It was basically, the main argument was that uh, we can't have any more of this disloyalty crap, so let's, uh, let's force the kids into the schools and uh, make sure that we don't get any more of these rebels and traitors. Uh, this has very ominous implications for libertarians because uh, it certainly, as all of us know, it's not libertarian values that you learn in the state schools. So what I'm pointing out here is I guess you might call it a kind of conspiracy theory because on a certain level it is a conspiracy. In other words, not just that there's some clique of people somewhere who, who got together and established the schools, but rather there has been a conscious and concerted effort by the uh, founders of the state schools and by their... Uh, the people up to the present day to preserve their own positions of power, number one, and secondly, to try to mold individuals into their way of thinking, um, specifically the doctrines of loyalty and so forth. Now, you might think that this sort of argument has died out. Well, it hasn't, and uh, this was just purely coincidental, and I apologize again for people who were at the panel because I went through this this morning, but just this very morning in the Sunday Times, there is an uh, article pro and con with the title should California adopt school vouchers? Now, <clears throat> I won't go through the... Well, I'll say something about both sides very briefly because it illustrates very well the very point that I want to make here. Again, I'm not pushing school vouchers. And if we're going to have anything, tax credits, I suppose, would be preferable to that. Uh, school vouchers, in many cases, are disbureaucratized, an already bureaucratized system. But the arguments here are very similar. It doesn't matter whether you're arguing for privatization, complete privatization, or tax credits, or whatever. The, the, the method of argumentation doesn't matter whether it's vouchers or not, so the same arguments apply. Now, the one side, by Leonard Ross, argues basically for vouchers on the basis of efficiency, that the schools are inefficient, they're not teaching well, they're wasting money. What does the other side, written by the great R. Freeman Butts, who was one of the old guard defenders of state schools from way back, what does he argue? Nowhere in this article is there anything about teaching kids to read and write. Nowhere is there anything about wasting money. What does Butts have to say? Now, and I want to emphasize, again, look at the historical tradition. There is a great continuity between Butts, who was a historian of education primarily, uh, and the people I've been reading to you. This sort of argument has not died down. So what does Butts have to say about against privatizing, to some degree, education? He says, to put the voucher initiative on the June 3rd, 1980 ballot raises serious questions about the role of education in a democracy. Basically, the voucher system boils down to this. Should the public school system be reorganized completely and reduced to one of several tax-funded school alternatives from which families and groups would choose whatever special varieties of education they desire for their children? Or should the existing public school system be strengthened and enabled to perform its historic mission, get the term, historic mission, as the principal means of preparing the vast majority of citizen, uh, children for a common democratic citizenship in our pluralistic society? He goes on to say that the essential issue is clearly the pursuit of private interests versus the public good. Of course, the public good being defined by R. Freeman Butts. Um, now, there's a couple of other of these. He says that uh, nowhere does the voucher proposal give a hint of the fundamental civic purpose of public education. And what is the civic purpose? Um, he quotes on this Chief Justice Earl Warren, who once wrote, Today, education is perhaps the most important function of state and local governments. It is the very foundation of good citizenship. And as one last quotation, which I think summarizes it very well, this is Butts' own proposal for wh where the state school should go. He says, 
By the end of the 1980s, the heart of the curriculum of teaching and of learning as well as of the governance of public schools should beat to the pulse of democracy's basic values and ideas. Ideas that formed the framework of the democratic political community that began to function here in 1789. Now, what are these ideas? Well, among them, he includes respect for elected authority, personal obligation to the public good, and, of course, egalitarianism. Now, this is very interesting and very instructive for libertarians because you see these two people, these two uh, sides are arguing across purposes. Here you have the efficiency ex -manias over, uh, maniacs over here saying the schools aren't efficient. And Butts saying, well, yeah, they're pretty efficient. They're turning out good citizens pretty well. And they're using different concepts of efficiency. So what I'm, in terms of who presented the best argument, I think Butts probably did. Uh, and it's not accidental that, you know, Butts is one of the few modern educators who's willing to lay it out on the line. You won't find a lot of lesser-known people explicitly saying we need state schools to mold good citizens. They, they sometimes will fall back on the arguments about teaching kids to read and write and poor kids and all this. But Butts knows better. He's an historian of education. He knows why the schools were set up. He certainly knows they're indefensible from any point of view of efficiency. He doesn't even bother to argue that point. So, and like the, like the educators before him who knew what was going on, he says, look, the issue is not, this is implicit in his article, the issue is not are the kids learning to read and write. The issue is are we going to have good citizens? Are we going to have people who respect authority and preserve our so-called democratic way of life? Are we going to have a bunch of crazy individualists out there doing their own thing? And he sees this as the basic function of the schools, that is to instill homogeneity. So I think the point uh, is made very clearly, and as I said, I could, this, this book we're doing now uh, is, has entire chapters dealing with some of these, some of these points. So as, as I said, it's not a very controversial uh, issue historically, and even the, the conventional historians of education no longer dispute these sorts of things. But as I said, it comes as a shock to many people, including libertarians, to realize that uh, what the arguments were and what the uh, proponents of state education were arguing for. Now, in just a couple more minutes, I'll try to leave room for questions. Uh, I want to, I, I can't summarize it uh, very well in just a few minutes, but I want to indicate to you that, as I said before, there has been a revolution in educational historiography, which libertarians uh, should take advantage of, although most of the historiography has come from the left. Uh, this movement is known as uh, revisionism, and revisionism is a term that's tossed around a lot. Uh, the first there were revisionist books before this, but the first book that really hit the educational establishment and really created a crisis in the in educational historiography was Michael Katz's The Irony of Early School Reform, which was written in, 19, in, in 1968. He followed this up with a book called Class Bureaucracy in Schools, written in 1971. Now, the interesting thing about Katz is he's basically a socialist. And yet, here you have in these books all these talks, he talks a lot about the unresponsiveness of the educational bureaucracy. But the thing that Cass did in his first book that absolutely shocked the educational establishment, I mean shocked because the educational journals like Harvard Educational Review and Review of Research and Education, all these journals are now filled for the last 10 years with articles in a sense which are spin-offs of the original things that uh, Cass was talking about. What, uh, what Cass did, he challenged the conventional wisdom about state schools, that somehow state schools were came from the bottom up. They were a mass movement. There was a mass demand for state schools. And it was a victory of the working man and the poor person over the uh, rich elites. This is how you find, like in Coverley's history, this is how he represents the struggle for straight state schools. It's the, the, the victory of the state school system and the common person and the poor people. So Katz says, well, you know, is this true? Were the state schools, was it really a movement that came from the ground up? So what he did is he took a town, in Bever uh, a town in Massachusetts named Beverly, which in 1860, interestingly, voted to abolish its high school, its state high school, a uh, public high school. So he, what he did is he very carefully went back and examined the voting records of who voted to keep the high school and who voted to abolish it, then in investigated in the town records the financial status and other details of the people who voted for and against. He came up with inter interesting results. If you want the specifics, you have to look in the irony of early school reform. What he found was that almost uh, overwhelming majority of the upper class and middle, upper middle class people voted to retain the high school. Those voting to abolish it were the lower income groups. Now, this doesn't quite fit into the model, the, the coverly model of the lower income groups favoring state schools. Well, why did the lower income groups oppose the schools? Well. Uh, there were several reasons, one of which the school was located, interestingly enough, right in the town where all the upper class lived, whereas a lot of the poor people were rural and couldn't travel in, to send, couldn't send their kids into the town. So it was set up basically to benefit the upper class. You know, it's not unlike some things today. Uh, he also found that uh, 
for the most part, uh, it was very difficult for poor people to send their children to high school because they needed them to work on the farm or to, to, to help with income. So therefore, the only people that ended up going to it, to the school by and large, because the only ones that could afford to go to it, even though it was, quote, free, were in fact the, the upper income groups. So uh, this is just one example. There are other historic, but since this time, there's been a lot of historical research, and virtually all of them bear out the Katz thesis. As he would put it, school reform, and meaning by school reform, the movement for state schools, school reform was, an, was not somehow a, a ground swelling from the ground up. It was an imposition from the top down. It was imposed. But specifically by what he calls elites, financial and social elites. It was seen as a way of controlling the population, keeping the poor in check. Now, I won't run through all the other books that have been done since then, since then developing the thesis. I'll mention uh, just two others. If you want to read a couple of really excellent books, uh, Katz's books are somewhat specialized. One book you must read is David Tyack's The One Best System, which is probably the best single volume on an overview of the history of, of, of uh, education in, since the 19th century. Uh, Tyak doesn't even consider himself a radical uh, revisionist, and yet uh, he writes somewhere in the book that he was curious as to why the victims of the uh, state schools always seem to be the poor and the oppressed classes. And uh, he concludes that it was, again, with, with Katz, that it was an imposition by elites from the top down. Another book which just came out is called uh, School to Order by Na David uh, Nassau, I think is his name, N-A-S-A-W. And this is just published. I just got it about a month ago. And this is uh, the School to Order book. Well, you can tell by the title. By that and the One Best System, they kind of imply their thesis by their titles. School to Order is a very good compilation of all the revisionist work that's been done so far. It doesn't contain a lot of original research, but it does tie together very well uh, the research that's been done by previous revisionists and puts it all in between the covers of one book because the literature is rather enormous. You have to uh, skim through the educational journals to find much of it. But this has created a virtual revolution in educational historiography. It's a very significant revolution. Now, the final point I want to make about this is that this educational historiography can be used with great advantage by libertarians. If you can familiarize yourself a little bit with the literature in this field, which goes along the lines of stuff that I've been saying, even though it's written by people largely from the left, and you have to overlook their complete ignorance of economics and so forth, the historical information is extremely valuable, and it can be used to buttress the libertarian case against state education. So we must avail ourselves of this empirical historical information in order to get away from the realm of pure theory so we can say, look, you know, here's, here's what was going on in the public schools uh, and here's why we oppose them. So in conclusion, let me uh, try to draw this together by giving you a very topical example of a controversy going on and how I would apply the model that I've just set up of the libertarian way of critiquing state schools to this particular problem. The problem is busing, very big here now in California, uh, big all over the United States probably to some extent, but it's very hot here now. Okay, a lot of libertarians think that the busing issue is kind of a libertarian thing, that uh, this is something libertarians can hitch their wagon to and because a lot of frustrated parents. Well, in a way, it, it, it's a, you can possibly exploit uh, the, the feelings of disgust by a lot of parents to have their kids bus for two hours or something. But I want to point out a couple of things. First, here locally, some of the biggest opponents of the proposed voucher and tax initiative programs, especially the tax initiative programs, have been the people on this L.A. school board who are themselves bus stop people. Roberta Weintraub was one of the most vocal critics I heard her the other day on the news condemning the tax initiative idea that it would destroy the great public school system. So uh, don't look entirely to these anti-busing people as necessarily as allies. Uh, secondly, the thing I want to point out is that a lot of these uh, parents, I don't mean to uh, pigeonhole too much, but a lot of these parents raising such a hue and cry are basically relatively affluent upper middle class types. And uh, where were these parents when the black kids were getting bused past white schools? You know, where was the, the, the cry of protest when the minorities were getting screwed over by the public schools? There was a lot of silence during those many years when the blacks and Chicanos and many, many other minority groups really got messed over. So the Indians are another example. This, this sudden upsurge of protest is basically a very self-serving one in the sense that it's not really a protest on principle. Because this sort of social manipulation, busing and all sorts of stuff in the schools has been going on, as I've tried to point out, since its inception. And all of a sudden there's this great outcry because now their kids are feeling the brunt of it. Now don't get me wrong, I sympathize with any parent regardless of income, race, or anything. Any parent whose kid has to be you know, shipped across town, that's, that's really a, sh a shame. 
The thing I'm pointing out is there's a difference between opposing something because it affects you personally and you just don't like it, and opposing something on principle. And the one thing libertarians have to be careful to do is point out the principles involved. Don't just deal with the busing issue today. Deal with it historically, as I said, when the black kids were bused across town past white schools uh, to, to preserve integration. You know, deal with it in historical sense. And historical point of view is, is crucial here for libertarians so we don't get pegged as being kind of a conservative white middle class uh, group that's interested only in the very short-term interests of the people who don't want their kids bust. That could be a disaster for libertarians. So you can exploit the kind of sense of frustration that these parents have, but don't sell yourself out. Uh, you know, you have to realize, as the revisionists have pointed out, that the major victims of state schools have not been the upper and the middle classes. They've been the lower classes. And you have to get this drilled into your head. These are the people who have really suffered. And I think libertarians should take on this cause and point out exactly in more detail than even the revisionists have done exactly how the poor and uh, less affluent groups suffer under a system of state education. So I see some danger in you know, hitching our wagon to a kind of a popular cause just because there's some frustrated parents. And so finally, uh, we, we can, uh, the way I would uh, say the way the libertarian critique differs, when the conservative says, this is terrible, the schools aren't teaching our kids, they're spending millions of dollars to bust them across town, why don't they use this money to improve this quality of the schools? This is the, basically the conservative critique of the busing thing. Why isn't this money used to teach rather than to bus? How would I as a libertarian respond to that? I respond to it like this. Why are you so surprised? Since when was education or cognitive skills, since when were they the primary purpose of state schools? State schools have always been used for so-called social purposes. Now this may be a somewhat different purpose, it may be a purpose you don't like, but basically what we have here is old wine and new wineskins. Basically all that's happening now is the same thing that's gone on for, for generation after generation in the system of state schools. So it's not that we don't sympathize with you, but why are you so surprised? Of course, the, the schools are used to manip manipulate the population according to a certain conception of the social good. Of course they are, because that's why they were set up. So while we agree with you that this is a terrible thing, let's not get too carried away and say, why are the schools betraying their purpose? Because they're not betraying the purpose. That indeed was the prime and primary purpose and still is. Okay, with that, uh, why don't we take some questions and uh, we have about seven minutes or so. We have to end promptly. Yes. Well, of course, there's a lot of ways you could respond. One is that the poor are not getting educated now anyway. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Why would what? How does a libertarian respond to the objection that in a free market system of schools, the the poor or, or say the child of a negligent parent might not get educated? As far as the negligent parent thing goes, um, well, first of all, go back to the poor thing. You would have to defend that on general grounds that a free market can better better provide goods and services for everyone. The poor can generally buy clothes. They can buy food. They can buy things that the private market provides. The thing that seems to have the trouble with the poor are things that are provided by the state. And there's a, there's a direct causal relationship. So that has to be argued on a more general economic ground about the, the ability of the free market to provide at a reasonable price. Uh, then you could also go into possible philanthropic organizations and so forth. As far as the negligent parent argument, um, this is the big, uh, the, the big argument that's used. But the thing I'd point out here is the very, we have to get into a long discussion of what is meant by education. Now, if by education you mean formal schooling, then some, it's true, some parents may choose not to send their children to formal schools, like this, uh, this Mormon fellow, was a Mormon that was shot recently, uh, you know, with, in his thing with the police. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily that they aren't getting educated. Now, if you're saying, what a parent, parent being so neglectful that the child is not educated at all, well, there indeed might be cases, let's face it, there might be children who may not be as well educated as we personally would like. But education does not necessarily have to occur between the ages of, you know, 6 and 12, or this is some kind of myth. I have seen, I've known personally, people who were illiterate. Uh, I knew a, a black fellow from the Deep South who was illiterate until he was 25, and working in a factory, a guy gave him a copy of Atlas Shrugged and said, you ought to read this. And uh, he didn't know how to read, but he was too embarrassed to admit it. So he went home and faked it for several months, kind of engaged this guy in conversations. He finally broke down it because he couldn't carry on the conversations anymore. He didn't know enough about the book and admitted he couldn't read, so the guy taught him to read using Atlas Shrugged. Now that, that may be, 
that might be a, a you know an exceptional case. But the point I'm making is that we there are a lot of stereotypes about you have to learn certain skills when you're a certain age, or you can't learn them at all. And that's just crazy. So that's one possible way out of that. Yes. Okay, I'll repeat. I'll repeat the question. Are different. I'm dismayed that most of the people I've talked to agree with all the people you've been quoting, and most people intuitively realize the real reason for public education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The point is that libertarians seem to be in an impasse because a lot of proponents of state education agree with all well, again, that's the general problem of how do we inculcate or spread libertarian values in general. I think one thing working in our favor is that in the 19th century, the state school idea was a relatively new one. And you can keep even a, a terrible system going for a certain amount of time. But it's, begin, it's just disintegrating now. And one thing libertarians have on, their t- uh, have on their side at this period of time is the total, almost the total disintegration of the state school system, at least from an academic point of view. And so now we can buttress our arguments with, look, it isn't even working. I mean, even on a very practical level, it isn't working from the point of view of scholarship. So it's a hard problem, but it's one that libertarians have to address just in general. Yes. On the directions for private education. Okay, and the Woodrow Wilson quotation. Um, oh, I, I, he wanted the reference for the Woodrow Wilson quotation and also a comment on the direction of private education today in the United States. It, you should see me after about the Wilson thing. I don't know if I have it here with me, but I could get it for you. Uh, secondly, on the direction of private education, I'm not really the right person to ask in the sense that my main research has been involved with historical uh, research and, and philosophical arguments and so forth. I really haven't reached the point of investigating the private school movements in detail. Uh, Bill Burt, uh, maybe here in this room, I'm not sure, he was on the panel earlier. He's involved very directly with this type of thing, and uh, there's several people around this convention I know that you could probably get a lot more information. I, I don't have a, couldn't probably say much that would be too helpful. Yes, in the back. Yes. We're, yes, I've been working for the past year or so on uh, doing basically the research and the preliminary writing along with Jack High from UCLA. And it's meant to be a kind of rather definitive treatise going from the ground up, even with libertarian theory, developing it all the way through its application to schools, going into all the historical material. There's an entire chapter on the revisionist school and, it's, and how libertarians can, you know, how it's interpreted from a libertarian point of view. It's meant to be a, I don't uh, be, want to be too pretentious and it's not going to be as long as this, but it's meant to be similar to a kind of uh, man economy and state, but in the area of education. In other words, between two volumes, you get all the basic arguments, historical examples, so you don't have to read a lot of other, other material. Yes, in the back. The question is about John Holt. John Holt, as I understand, I've read a few of his things, is uh, basically a de-schooler type, uh, kind of Ivan Illich, uh, who wrote De Schooling Society. And I should mention that the de-schoolers, yeah, he's good in the sense he's opposed to state education, so he's a libertarian in that sense. But the de-schooling movement is not exactly the same as what libertarians are pushing for. A lot of de-schoolers, for example, Illich, opposed any sort of organization, any sort of institution of schools. It wasn't just uh, state schools that Illich was opposed to, with schools of any kind. So that would include state schools, obviously, but somehow Illich argued that even private schools were oppressive, that they were, had to be regimented and, and all this sort of thing. And I've heard that sort of thing argued, but the, the, I'm not, I don't commit myself one way or another to that. I simply say, let the market decide. If parents want schools, then there will be schools. If, if they don't, then there won't be. Uh, on this side, just Yes, that's right. Uh, no, I haven't, and I frankly think it's a dismal prospect that, we'll, that the libertarian argument will ever break through to teachers' unions. Uh, the, the, well, the NEA is, is definitely evil, and so is the AFT. I would go that far, yeah. <laughs> the, the NEA is the largest, and the combined, the combined manpower and woman power, the NEA and AFT, it constitutes the largest single labor force in the United States. It's the, it, it is now the entrenched bureaucracy. Those are the main people we have to fight. 
not unions per se, but those two particular unions. It would be great if you could get the frustrated teachers who realize that things falling apart, but the vested interests are very, very strong. To give you, I, I'm sorry, I'll have to close with this because I have to get here promptly, but I read in 1972, I think it was, that there was a uh, thing on, by, put out by the NEA on the compulsory attendance laws, and they recommended a kind of a liberalization of the compulsory attendance laws. But as part of their recommendation, one of the primary recommendations was that the funds that schools have to be increased dramatically. Now that's a strange thing to put in a recommendation of compulsory attendance. Why do you need more funds? Because if you don't force kids to come to school, you have to make it more attractive to them. Therefore, we need more tax funds to have all these programs that will attract the kids to the school. So even the NEA, when they're talking about compulsory education, always sneaks in that we need more money. That's just one example out of many. Well, I'm sorry. I was told I have to end right on time. So thank you very much. With the separation of school and state alliance, extend to George Smith our appreciation for his kind permission to duplicate this tape. If you'd like more information about the separation of school and state, please call or write our phone number, 209-292-1776. The mail address, 4578 North 1st, Box 310, Fresno, California, 93726. You may also visit our website at www.fetsoool.org. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this.